guys, and welcome to Happy, Sad, Confused. I'm Josh Horowitz. It's summer. Sammy, it's summer. I'm it's sweating. I'm summer. schwitzing. Uh, welcome to my podcast. Um, we are in summer, the way you can tell besides the weather here in New York, which is a little warm, uh, but lovely-ish. Uh, <laughs> it's like not even that warm. Whatever. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about the important stuff. It, you can tell because uh, it's summer movie season, and, yes. and the movie we're talking about this week is X-Men Apocalypse, which as we speak, as you hear this, is now out in theaters making millions upon millions of dollars. Uh, a super fun movie. I greatly enjoy it and the guest this week is producer writer kind of x-men impresario he's kind of the guiding force behind the x-men movies uh the kevin feige if you will in the x-men universe uh it's uh simon kinberg simon kinberg has an amazing resume especially for a big old dweeb, uh, dweeb like me a geek like me i was gonna try and <laughs> i was gonna <laughs> try and combine it because i'm short on time um but yeah his credits include everything from mr and mrs smith uh he's working on the star Wars movies as a consultant um, and a bunch of the X-Men movies Gambit. as a producer. Yes, he's a producer on Gambit. Uh, he's a producer on the new Wolverine movie. Um, so a lot R-rated Wolverine That's movie. right. I know. We're going to talk yeah, about that. Yeah. So um, I hope you guys enjoy this conversation with Simon, who's somebody that um, I see a lot of because he's so prolific. He also produced uh, The Martian last year, which was obviously a huge success for him. Um, so yeah. Busy guy, huh? Very busy guy. This is a power player, yeah. man. Like, take a vacation. <laughs> okay, we'll try to get him on a vacation after <laughs> yeah. this conversation. Um, what to talk about? As I was, uh, I was saying to you when I walked in, I walked to work. It's a nice little leisurely walk for me. Oh, you must have been so worked up by the time you got here. It's a little, I don't know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's everybody's like dressed like, like in summer garb. Everybody's uh-huh. happy. Everybody's, uh-huh. I don't know. It's not my oh, speed. Oh, God, it sounds awful. It's not, I like a little gloom. I like a little yeah. like gray. You like it when it's, um, like you don't have to smile at people when they walk past you on the street. Yes, or, I don't need to. I need yeah, to like that. if you take the subway, you can put your headphones in. I've gotten several. Listen I, to your movie soundtrack. I certainly have uh, to even call what I have any degree of celebrity is over uh, stating the case because I don't. But on the occasions that people tweet at me saying they've seen me on the street, more than a few times I get tweets like "Just past Josh Horowitz on the street, he looked miserable yeah. or he looked angry." <laughs> like you kind of have resting bitch face. I do. Josh? I definitely have resting bitch. You really do. I have a lot of angst in here. And I think that maybe this is the summer. Maybe you buy a pair of shorts. I own shorts. You do? I've worn shorts to work before. There's no way you've worn shorts to work. I will wear shorts to work for you. I I can't wait. When Josh wears shorts, we will tweet it from the MTV (laughs) official account. I promise you, you will all see. I'm Jewy. I've got the herstute, hairy uh, legs. It's a little grody. It's going to be a little disgusting for all of you. So you you should be wearing shorts all the time. Well, I was intimidated. You know, Joel, our our compadre who often works on After Hours, who's now out in LA, um, is is the hairiest, hairiest man alive. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I didn't want to show off my hairy legs because he's right. going to always out hair me. Joel, hair, you, you, know. you will never be. There's one thing you will never <laughs> beat Joel in. It's true. And it's hair. It's true. Um, this must be really weird for people who don't know who Joel is. That's okay. Which is probably most people. No, I think everybody <laughs> knows Joel by now. Um, so, yes, it's but it's lovely. It's a lovely time of year. Yeah, you're wearing your shirt. You're, you've got your sleeves pulled up to your elbow. Oh, you know, so it was, you're you know exposing it was, some. <laughs> the guns. So, yeah. You, you know, forearm. <laughs> It's the only part of my body I work out every day. 
<laughs> use those stress balls Look, all the time. I'm isolating muscles, yeah. and then I'm going to move on to other parts of my body yeah. once the forearms are taken care of. Yeah, that's all people see when they shake your hand. <laughs> like, wow. Like, when you meet, yeah. Um, no, but it's kind of funny because I was leaving um, my apartment this morning for work, and I was, you know, just checking the weather on my phone, and I'm going. Well, by the time you hear this, I'm in. I'm in Ireland, guys. Oh my God, I'm in Ireland. Um, ah. And so I was checking the weather there, and. Um, uh, or I wasn't checking the weather there, but I programmed that, that onto my phone. So I walked out of the apartment thinking it was 54 degrees. And uh, nighttime. Uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I had to make a quick reassessment of my wardrobe. Can you do an mm. Irish accent for me? No, I'll get back next week. I'll, I'll be good. Part of this is a research no, trip. No, I want to hear your before and after. I want to hear what it sounds like before you go. And then I want to hear I what you I want to alienate learned. my 12 Irish listeners. No, you're going you're gonna to show them how I say? much you um, that's not even a word. That was, that's, my, that's, that's clearing my throat. Excuse me, where's the closest men's room? Excuse me, the closest men's room. Oh my God, it was so good. Was that horrible? Everyone should see how small he gets when he does it. <laughs> he like turns let, into a real leprechaun. I let the character inhabit yeah. me. It's a full body portrait. It comes portrait. fully from the throat. <laughs> Your Irish accent is fully in the throat. Don't, don't make that sound. That's going to hurt people. Um, what else to mention? Oh, uh, I should mention, speaking of X-Men, there's a great new After Hours that we uh, shot the other day that is up on the interwebs right now on MTV News' YouTube page. Shot it with um, the youngins, the new young folk. Yeah. Um, Evan Peters, who's actually, you know, it's a sec- it's his second X-Men film, but also um, uh, the new Jubilee, the new Storm, the new Cyclops. They were all super charming and uh, willing to do my kind of silliness in a, a sketch called X-Men Anonymous. So check it out. It's very fun. I was very happy with it. Was there a, a cameo in that one like there is in the movie? You know what I mean? Um, you'll just have to check it out for yourself. No. <laughs> no, I don't want to disappoint you. Like, just anywhere. And Tom Hiddleston yes, shows he up. always shows up. No, uh, sadly not. But uh, look, they had enough star power and charisma to no, uh, make I'm it work. No, I'm very excited. Um, and also check out, I think um, I did a Q&A last night with the uh, that same group, plus Simon Kinberg and plus James McAvoy at the uh, Apple Store in Soho in New York. Um, and that should be up on iTunes. And that was a super fun chat because we love our James McAvoy, McAvoy of course. McAvoy is a friend of the show. Oh, he, we, of the family. we talked a lot about it in, in the in the green room before about how he's a veteran and how he's he's done three now. And oh, I he, thought you meant of happy, sad, confused. No, <laughs> no, so. <laughs> no, no, no. He's a veteran of after hours. Got it, got it, got he, it. He fondly maybe re- recollected our first sketch in which uh, he kissed me, mm-hmm. um, and, and apparently he does too. He thinks of it often. And um, <laughs> <That's> special, <is> that? <laughs> apparently very special. So um, yeah, if that doesn't pique your interest, guys, yeah, go Google um, uh, James McAvoy after hours and my little name, and you'll find some fun stuff out there. Um, but yeah, X Men on the brain. Let's talk to Simon Kinberg as I said he's got a lot going on so a lot to chat with him about and if you haven't already go check out x-men apocalypse it's everyone a, it's a good has one. already but go see it again guys it again. there's so many characters X-Men. Oh. we love it that's her loving x-men voice we love it <laughs> <laughs> uh enjoy this conversation with simon kingberg Oh, 
Um, no formal introduction, but I'm excited to have Mr. Simon Kinberg in my office. Excited to be here. Simon, good to see you, man. Thank you. Um, so it's been a busy, I feel like I see you every few weeks because yes. you're working like a crazy person. Yes, that's true. Talk for a good cause. I hope so. Um, <laughs> but it's been an interesting, even in the last year, hmm. the Martian Fantastic Four, X-Men Apocalypse. Um, does it feel like you've kind of had every kind of different possible experience there is for a writer producer? The last year, year and a half have been actually um, definitely ran the spectrum for me. I mean, the last year, uh, 2015 started with uh, Chappie. Um, and oh, that's then right. Sure. Literally, I think like a week later, Cinderella opened. Um, and then a few months later, Fantastic Four opened, which was um, a disappointment. And and I think we were at the Toronto Film Festival with The Martian a couple weeks after that. Crazy. So it was a lot of up and down roller coaster ride. And the truth is, you know, you put as much effort into the ones that don't work as you do the ones that do. Right. Sometimes you put more effort in. So you just never know. Do, do the like the balancing, and we'll get into the specifics of the highs and the lows. But like, the, does it all kind of balance out in a, in a way? Like in terms of like, do you find yourself not enjoying the highs as much and not getting as bummed out by the lows as much? It depends. I mean, the truth is, it's a little bit like there's certain movies you invest more emotionally in. Yeah. Um, for me, it, it tends to be the ones that I write and produce. So I feel a little bit more vulnerable on the ones that I'm, especially the the, the first writer of. Sure. Um, and I didn't have any of those last year, actually, interestingly. All of those were projects either came in to rewrite or I was just the producer of. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it depends from movie to movie. Um, uh, you, you try not to let the lows linger for too long, and you try to enjoy the highs because right. you don't know when the next one will be. Well, I guess the good thing about um, where your career's at, and it's been like this, I guess, for the last while, is... You, as busy as you are, you don't have time to kind of <laughs> revel too much and um, psych yourself out in a way. It's true. You get right back to work. Right. I mean, interestingly, I was on the set of I was on the set of Apocalypse when Fantastic Four came out. Mm -hmm. So it was like you know I could mourn for a day or two, and then on Monday I had to get right back to totally. shooting a movie and dealing with actors and having a crew of a few hundred people that like had no interest in Fantastic Four. So they just were like, "We're making another movie here. Let's get to go." Let's totally. Get so, so for this one, you're talking about you know feeling a little bit more invested in, in, in certain ones just by the nature of how you know if you were involved from the start. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you think of these X Men films as such massive endeavors, as you say, hundreds of people working on them. Brian at the helm, mm -hmm. big studio concerns. Is it possible for you to feel kind of proprietary and like make it feel like a personal kind of project when it's that large a film? It, it is when I write it. Um, you know, I start everything I write, no matter what it is, from a very, very, very personal place. And like, I mean, the first movie I ever wrote was Mr. and Mrs. Smith, and that was like right. my version of uh, sort of therapeutically working through a relationship I was in at the time where uh, my girlfriend said I was better in conflict than I was in. St stability. Um, and I was like, oh, that's kind of an interesting idea for a movie. I'll turn it into something. And I don't write Kramer versus Kramer, Ordinary People, or Straight Dramas. I grew up on action movies in the 80s, so that's just sort of what comes out of me. Yeah. Um, so, like, as an example, Days of Future Past was I was at a place in my life where I was uh, in a tough moment and feeling kind of hopeless. And so I made Charles Xavier in a tough moment where he felt hopeless. And yeah. that movie became... Um, this sort of personal expression for me. Uh, and, and we don't have, I mean, it, it then goes through a lot of different hands. It goes through the hands of Brian. It goes sure. through the hands of, of the actors themselves that I work really closely with. But we don't have a lot of interference 
um, from the studio on the X-Men movies. To be honest, they kind of leave us alone and trust us to do it um, yeah. until we completely screw it up. And then, <laughs> and then they will come in and, and, and step in and discipline us. But <laughs> well, whatever, However it works, it's working just fine. Um, talk to me a little bit about like what, what are the unique challenges you think of the X-Men franchise? There's a lot. I mean, I think the biggest challenge is it's an ensemble movie. And yeah. so you have like, you know, anywhere between five and ten characters that you really need to service. And... And a good four or five of them are main characters and actors who are used to being number one a call sheet. Right. I mean, you look at our call sheet, and I don't, I don't remember what the order was this time, but I think Jennifer Lawrence was like number four on the call sheet. You know, Oscar Isaac's like number six on the call sheet. <laughs> These are people that whole movies revolve around, yeah. obviously. So that's the biggest challenge as a writer and as a producer. Um, producerially, it's a challenge because just, just like matching up all of their schedules, the checkerboard of that. Um, is insane. I mean, it's literally like a Jenga Rubik's Cube nightmare of how do you get people in and out of TV shows and sure. other movies and they're doing press for some other film. Um, creatively, it's a bit of a nightmare because, you know, you want to be able to tell fully fleshed stories for each of these characters. But in truth, if you really do the math, you have like 15 to 20 pages at most to tell an entire story for that character. Right. And they all have to also coalesce into something that's ultimately, hopefully, coherent. And, and what about the fact that I mean, you kind of allude to this, like you have these actors that like, you know, even outside of the franchise kind of like are on the rise. You got Jennifer at the precise, mm -hmm. perfect moment. I think she had just signed on for Hunger Games at the time too, right? And um, and by now she's like arguably the most famous movie star on the planet. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and she has certain needs and wants as an actor, as they all do. I mean, she's not been shy about talking about how much she hates the makeup and hates the, you know, mm -hmm. like having to get into the blue getup and probably nobody would love it. Right. But um, that's a whole other level that you have to address as both yeah. a producer and a writer. And yeah. you have to serve the character, but you also have to serve the actor. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing that's lovely about this particular cast in truth is that they're, they all grew up together. I mean, in, over the span of the last five or six years, we've spent, you know, three years of that almost together. Right. We've made three movies. Um, and Jen was a kid when we started the movie. She was 17 years old and completely unknown and had a problem with the blue makeup then and has a problem with it now. And it's understandable. Like, right. I have a problem with it. I made a deal with her. I think it was like on this last movie, I can't remember what the number was, but it would be no more than something like 14 days in the blue paint. And any day past that, I would have to be in the blue as many days as she was. <laughs> So I get it. Um, so I, you, have I, you been in blue? No, okay. no. I was well very, <laughs> it was a smart move. She's a very, very intelligent woman. She knew how to negotiate her way uh, down in the days. Um, but but the truth is there's not a lot of ego involved. Yeah. It seems like there would be because they're huge movie stars. And Michael Fassbender blew up since the, since the movie started. Exactly, Nick yeah. Holtz, you know, doing really well in his career. James always has done well. Um, and yet there is not, there is not a sense of ego. Um, there is this sort of, family, familial, almost summer camp vibe to the yeah. way we make these movies. And I think also because they're not the, the sole lead of the film, there's a certain pressure that's taken off their shoulders right. and they're a little more relaxed. Is um you know coming off of oh, you know we, we did a like an Apple Store Q and A last night and I alluded to this a little bit I mean Days of Future Past was such a a bold move in many ways for you guys in terms of again just level of complexity I can't even imagine a that was tough because it also had time travel yeah you have time travel you have twenty five name actors yeah. from different casts um and then like you know the fanboys going crazy about continuity and all that stuff yeah. do, do, how much does continuity and all that stuff matter to you at this point it does matter to me. A lot actually. Yeah. I keep a chart of it um, going forward, and I felt like one of the things we did with Days of Future Past was we kind of blew it up. Yeah. Um, and yet, everything found its way back to something resembling 
X1, 2, and 3 by the end of the movie. I mean, Wolverine right. wakes up in Xavier's school that is a school for kids that Storm is teaching in that you see a lot of the familiar students in. So it's not like the world has so radically changed, you know, that that school has become whatever, like a dance club um, <laughs> or whatever it would be. Um, it, it, and there's a line in that, in the in the in the movie that I sort of take to be almost like our philosophy or religion now. It's when Hank, uh, Nicholas Holt's character, talks about the immutability of time. Mm -hmm. And it is actually a real scientific theory that you can alter time, but you can't really change the general current right. of the way history it, is going to flow. It'll ebb its way back. It'll go back to where it's supposed to go. Yeah, exactly. And so we sort of take that to be the rule, which is we can make changes, and yet ultimately, you know, it will it will find its way, for the most part, back to the original right. movies, which were based on the comics. So we just don't ever want to stray too much Sure. From from the comics, it's also just a fascinating thing. Just looking at like your career and like you know the fact that I think Last Stand was the first of mm -hmm. the the ones that you, you worked on. Um, that was a huge uh, commercial success. That, but as you well know, there were some critical response and again fanboy response that didn't necessarily love what you did with the Phoenix storyline at true? the time. I, <laughs> stop I have it. to get just the internet. Stop. I have to check to make sure your sources are. Correct. <laughs> I need to remind you about these sort of things, yeah, right? Yeah. No, I'm well aware of that. <laughs> but I mean, it, the, the funny thing is, like, you kind of like have a second chance at doing the mm -hmm. things that maybe I don't know if you. Were or, or in the wake of seeing how uh, people responded to it, you had that rare ability to kind of correct maybe is too strong a word, but to get a second shot at some Yeah, I think all everything you just said is true. Um, and, and the truth of it is, I do regret the way that we handled the Dark Phoenix story in, right. in X3 because it wasn't the A plot of the movie. I mean, originally when Zach Penn and I co-wrote that script and we were writing it actually ironically for Matthew Vaughn to direct... And when we were doing that, the A, the A plot of the movie, meaning the primary plot of the film, was the Dark Phoenix story. And sort of as a deep B story was the mutant cure plot. Mm. And then somewhere over the span of development, for reasons that I don't need to get into, um, the, they, they sort of flipped. And the mutant cure became the primary right. driving plot of the movie. And Dark Phoenix became a little bit more of the background character story of the movie. And we gotcha. didn't do a lot of the things that we originally wanted to do. So I regret that we didn't have a chance to do it the way we wanted. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, now that we have a young Jean Grey and we have a lot of room between there and wherever she, you know, ends up. Right. 20, 30 years from the 1980s, uh, we can we can potentially tell that story again and do it a, a way that's more loyal to the essence of the comics. Yeah. So, I mean... What do you think, as someone that's that's written a fair number of these, produced a, a many of these, and is a fan of these films, and by that these films I mean comic book movies, um, is there a key mistake you think that people generally make, whether it's you yourself have made or seen other filmmakers make in approaching adapting comic book films? Well, I think it's not that different than the mistakes people make um, in making any tentpole movies or action big mm -hmm. sort of spectacle movies, which is, I think when the movies rely too much on spectacle. Um, when it becomes too much about visual effects and action and blowing stuff up, um, you sort of lose what is valuable about the source material. And what was valuable about comics is the characters. People came back week to week for the characters. They didn't come back for the stories because the stories changed every week. It's right. the characters that they became um, enamored of and uh, and committed to. So I think in comic book movies where you feel, and I won't name names, and, and some of them are really successful. So mm -hmm. it just I'm just speaking sort of creatively. Sure. Um, I think where they go wrong is where they start to rely on pyrotechnics yeah. and not realize that 
these are really dramatic, operatic, emotional character stories. Yeah. You know, where people have powers, but the powers are more often than not a metaphor for something else. Well, I think that's, I mean, and for me in watching what you guys have done with this latest trilogy of movies, if we want to talk about it that way, it's like, I think for many, why a lot of the, the Eric scenes, the Magneto scenes mm-hmm. are the most powerful. There's such like a emotional component. You combine that with Fassbender's performance and it feels like, you know, it, it can be plucked out of a quote unquote superhero movie and feel like a high, amazing drama. Yeah. Well, that's the high. I really appreciate that. That's that's very high praise, and that's certainly the hope. And and Michael is one of the actors who I feel a lot of pressure to write um, drama for. Sure. Um, I mean, all of the actors. You know, we have so many great dramatic actors, including Oscar Isaac in this movie as well. Classically trained, classical actors have done Shakespeare, and 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 Michael and I have become very close friends, as as we all have. Uh, but but he he has this sort of ability, um, sort of supernatural ability, to go to very dark, emotional, human, raw places. Yeah. And it would be a waste to not um, go there with him. Um, the, the, this uh, podcast is uh, out now that people have had a chance to see the movie and go back and see it three or four or five times. Right. Um, fingers crossed. Um, Don't jinx us. This isn't necessarily a spoiler thing, but I know you've talked about this. Um, but the, the whole Taylor Swift Dazzler thing, which yeah. like exploded on like Instagram and whatever, it was a concert. You it's guys kind of my to. fault. That is actually my fault. I will, <laughs> I will claim responsibility for it only in that I love that album. Right. Um, and I really love Taylor Swift's music, uh, which is, you know, not totally um aligned with maybe being a comic book geek but i do love i love that album who does who doesn't love i especially love that album because i grew up in the 80s and it has a sort of 80s vibe right obviously it's called 1989 so um i uh through a friend um um who is actually a huge fanboy um kyle newman um oh sure yeah yeah, yeah. uh he did he directed a few videos uh for taylor Mm -hmm. and so i she was coming to montreal while we were shooting apocalypse right and I said, hey, will you get me a ticket um, to the show? And then so actually, will you get like four or five tickets? I'll bring some of the cast maybe or whomever from the movie wants to go. Right. So he said, sure. And then he said, and I emailed or texted her and said that you guys were going to be there. So, you know, why don't you go hang out afterwards? So that's what we did. We went to the show as fans. We went out to hang out with her afterwards as like really geeky fans. Mm-hmm. Um, Nicholas Holt took a photograph of me, her, McAvoy and Sophie Turner together, which um, I and or well Taylor Swift more importantly uh, put it on her Instagram and it had like Equal number millions yeah, yeah yeah I, I haven't checked recently but it's yeah there's definitely <laughs> some of the numbers are the same there's just more numbers in <laughs> right. hers um, uh, and then rumors started about her being an X-Men but she really was just passing through for the night to do a concert but here's my question is this one of those things that could like actually turn into reality it's one of these like silly mm. fun stories that like I'm sure someone at, I mean I'm sure Fox of all whatever will be like uh yeah that'd be cool with us like you'd be cool with me i mean like i think she's awesome so um and you know dazzler plays a big role uh in a lot of different storylines that we're we're talking about doing so it would be uh yeah it could be cool have there been any official or unofficial offerings or talk about it no no there hasn't okay okay fair enough uh we know from uh, if you haven't seen the film even from the latest trailer that uh, a very familiar character perhaps the most beloved x-men character makes an appearance in this uh, wolverine was that something from the get-go or was that something that kind of evolved in the in the process or even while filming that you added the sequence? No, from the get-go, from the from the conceptual phase, we wanted Hugh to be a part of the movie, Wolverine to be in the film. It, it felt, um, I don't know, I think Brian especially, but, but me as well, feel like he's such an integral part of the movie. Like yeah. you say, he is one of, if not the most, he really is the most beloved, at least of the film characters. Yeah. He's the most beloved and best known. And we the, what did evolve over the span of developing the script um, was what role he would play, how big a role. I mean, there was a moment where he was in sort of half the movie. Oh, wow. Um, and there was a, 
it was I, I wrote a whole outline that was him sort of coming in around the middle of the movie and becoming the sort of drill sergeant for the kids mm. and be, becoming a leader once Charles is taken. And then I felt like that stole a lot of thunder from Mystique's story. Right. Um, and also wasn't necessarily the the sort of the character you wanted to see Wolverine play. Yeah. Um, so we went through lots of different permutations of it. And then Brian and I were in London, I think the Christmas before last, whenever it was. And we had this idea that we had already in the plot that they were taken prisoner by right. Stryker. So we thought, what if he takes them to, you know, Akali Lake to, to Weapon X facility? Um, and they there run into um, a very bestial, full-on Weapon X, yeah, Wolverine. And as you well know, that, that kind of, that type of um, Wolverine that we haven't necessarily seen, and I know the fans have been kind of clamoring for, and, yeah. and dovetailing in a different kind of way with um, what's going to be the last Wolverine mm -hmm. film, at least the last Wolverine one for, for Hugh, um, an R-rated Wolverine film. Was that something, I mean, you produced, of course, uh, Deadpool. Mm -hmm. Is that something that a decision was made after you saw the returns on Deadpool, that we could definitely do this and there'd be an audience, or? No, there was an instinct to want to do um, a Wolverine movie that was more like the comics, yeah. and, and it had always felt like it wanted to be R-rated, even the previous ones. So um, that wasn't related to Deadpool. Gotcha. Does there is there a uh, you know without revealing too much? I know you guys just started production. Is there a finality to this one? I mean, I don't want to reveal anything because actually, I think one of the things that's really cool about the movie, as we've talked about it, is that all of the filmmakers and Hugh wanted to feel special, and part of it feeling special is that we don't talk tons about okay. it before it comes out so um yeah that's i'm gonna honor that but uh, the, the prospect though have you guys even entertained the thought looking past hugh at this point can you envision a uh like do you have to wait a few years before you even imagine recasting a wolverine or is that something is there even a, a a chart on a wall of potential actors at this point there is no chart on a wall of potential actors and i think we're a ways away from thinking of a different wolverine um if in fact, this is the last time Hugh plays it, um, I would want to see the character again in movies. And I think yeah. Hugh himself would want to see the character again in movies and would yeah. feel okay passing the mantle on um, to someone else. But it's we're a ways away from having to contemplate that. And there's something um, that makes me sad and my soul sort of like crumple up. And <laughs> okay, we don't want to make you cry it. on this podcast yeah, right thanks. now. Do you have a favorite uh, of the characters that you get a chance to write yeah, for? Yeah, without exception, Magneto. Yeah. Um, and not because for of Michael. I mean, Michael is an, is an extra bonus and Ian McKellen did an amazing job with him as well. <clears throat> it's just a character that was my favorite comic book character growing up. Yeah. Um, I just think he's the most complex villain and even I wouldn't necessarily sort of describe him as a villain even though he does villainous things. Um, his philosophy is so complex. His background um, is so empathic. Yeah. Uh, I think as a Jew, um, there's not a lot of us in, in <laughs> comics uh, in, in primary roles. So that also appealed to me. Um, and I just, I've just always loved him as a character. Yeah. What's the... Um is there a big takeaway, I mean, from the Deadpool experience and seeing sort of like, I mean, it must exceed everybody's like imagination in terms of how big it became and how it yeah. worked with an audience on every level. Um, what's your takeaway from that, if there is one? My takeaway, it certainly exceeded all of our expectations. And I mean, all of ours, meaning the studio, Tim, Ryan, I mean, we were all sort of. Uh, in shock the weekend that it opened and, and even had, had a sense obviously that it was going to do well but had no no sense that it would do as well as it did or that it would actually surpass any X-Men movie ever which yeah. is kind of insane to say um, I think the takeaway is it's not about being R-rated it's not about uh, being foul-mouthed it's not about breaking the fourth wall it's just about being fresh and I think what happened with that movie was at a time when there is a saturation to almost oversaturation of these kinds of comic book movies in the marketplace. Yeah. It was one that came along and just was completely different and fresh and original and bold. And so that's what we've we've tried to 
sort of uh, take into the Wolverine movie and the future X-Men movies and all these movies that we're talking about. And I think for me, any movie that I work on yeah. um, is that uh, you will be rewarded um, for being a little bold and fresh and risky. Is that part of the excitement of New Mutants for you in terms of uh, while it's, it's some familiar characters, it's uh, a slightly a different angle, a different kind of feel? Yeah, it's a different tone. Um, and I think part of what's fun about New Mutants and Deadpool and Gambit um, and future X-Men movies is, is that each time the the attempt or intent is to almost sort of work within a subgenre of the genre. Yeah. So like First Class was in some ways Matthew Vaughn doing a James Bond movie. Right. And the Days of Future Past was obviously a time travel movie and Apocalypse is a disaster movie. And Deadpool to me actually is weirdly kind of like a romantic comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so each time and New Mutants would be a, a YA right. um, kind of movie yeah. and Gambit would be more of a heist movie and so it's an opportunity to play in these different genres that are really rich genres, um, but add sort of superpowers so, to them. So what is it, what is that? I'm curious what that means to you when you say YA in terms of like what 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 tonally what does that reflect? Well, it's, it focuses really most primarily on teenage characters. Yeah, I mean the X Men movies have teen characters in them, but they tend to be the secondary characters, not the primary characters. Right. Um, and there's just a certain angst and different. Um, I don't know, like sort of set of issues exactly that teenagers yeah, yeah. have, and, and you know, and when we talk, when Josh Boone, who's directing the movie and directed um, *Fault in Our Stars*, mm. when we talk about models and paradigms, we don't talk so much about superhero movies. We talk more about like John Hughes movies, right? Um, and so that is just a slightly different defining paradigm. It's interesting because it's it's kind of sounds uh, similar, and it's I think it's a smart move. Uh, I don't know if you would agree, but like what Feige and everybody are doing with Spider-Man too, and make, maybe making that next Spider-Man movie not about again the end of the world because we've seen that a lot, and we'll always see that, and that's great. But um, sometimes you can have just as dramatic a storyline when it's you know about prom or whatever personal yeah. issues. And- yeah, you know, I, I just saw Civil War for the first time. I mean, it's it, I should have seen it a long time ago, but I was really busy working, and and I sort of wanted to see it when I had a clear mind, and I saw it here in New York last week by myself. And I loved it. I thought it was actually fantastic. Yeah. And, and and part of what I, I mean, I loved so many different things about it. I loved Spider-Man in it. I thought he was a home run. But um, but I, what I really loved about it is that it was a massive movie in scale, obviously. I mean, just absolutely as big as it gets. And that that's the way they make movies. But it, at the in the third act, it really telescoped down into this very, very personal fight. Yeah. Um, both for, I mean, for all the characters, really. Um, but obviously for, for Iron Man and, and Cap America, especially. And I just thought that was bold. I thought in a movie that had the kind of scale that that movie had, instead of sort of expanding and escalating into the yeah. third act, it actually contracted and, and it became very um, personal. And, and smart and kind of, again, playing with audience expectations. You get to that third act and that, that base or whatever, you're expecting the super soldier crazy yeah. mayhem, and it turns into just like this such personal betrayal. And it's you're right, in my mind, of those that side of the Marvel Universe and among those movies, it's probably one of the most emotionally powerful scenes I think they've done. It was amazing. And, and to me, it also, it like, it, and I think movies in general, uh, especially uh, action or genre or superhero movies, are best when they have a coherent theme, yeah. especially because there's so many characters to service that you can't really have like there's not one emotion that you're dealing with there's sort of a larger theme and i felt like at least my experience of civil war was so much about friendship and at the end of the movie to really turn these these friends against each other um and yet have them come back together in a really elegant way in the last letter that he writes to tony 
um, I just thought was really, really well done. And again, having been through um, all the highs and lows that go along with uh, films that, that are scrutinized in this way, when you see, um, you know, something like Batman versus Superman, which does well commercially, yeah. they probably would have wanted a little bit more, but it did quite well. Yeah, um, but I will take that. Yeah, exa- exactly, right. <laughs> but um, but kind of lambasted, frankly, by mm-hmm. by critics and especially what the, the fanboys out there. Um, are you kind of more sympathetic and understand kind of the how hard it can be, or do you also have that critical eye and, and when you're watching it, see like the, the 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 changes you would have made or what you would have done differently? I have my own taste, and 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 I watch every movie from that perspective, yeah. and it's not necessarily from the like what I would do better or different. Um, I learn a lot from movies, both the good and the bad. Um, and there's movies I like that are super random movies that people don't like, and then there's movies that I that I don't like that you know we're huge massive success of right. successful movies and maybe even you know win awards and stuff so i mean you know that's separate from my understanding or empathy with when you have a movie that's as big as that and the profile is as, as big as that movie is yeah um and you know the fans speak it's it is we live in a a very loud echo chamber yeah um and the internet is that echo chamber uh and one person yelling or a thousand people yelling can feel like a million people yelling sometimes. And I have felt that I have felt the sort of all of those voices. Right. So, um, I have a lot of empathy for any movie, um, that gets sort of attacked partly because I know how hard it is to make movies and nobody tries to make a bad movie. Right. Um, and everybody sweats and toils and does, you know, the 14, 18 hour days and they're in some country they don't want to be in because there's a tax incentive there. And, um, you know, there's no light at the end of the tunnel, it feels like, most of the time. And it's just a miserable process making a movie. That's the truth. Yeah. Um, and I think people from the outside think that it's a very glamorous process because they see, like, the movie premiere and they read about the grosses and everything seems, you know, um, like you're living the high life. But when you're making a film, it's really, really hard. That's, um, that's, so I feel bad for people, any movie, uh, whether it deserves it or not, um, that gets hit. Well, you've given the perfect segue because we have to talk a little bit about Fantastic Four. Okay. Just, okay. So, so what's the when you look back, is there is there a day, a decision where you feel like if you had gone down left instead of right, that the outcome would have been much different? I don't think that there is in any movie that doesn't work a single decision that is the reason that that movie doesn't work. Yeah. Um, I think uh, there were many, many decisions we made along the way. Um, that led to a movie that people didn't like and a movie that um, I would do differently um, next time. I think the biggest takeaway for me, and there were many, many takeaways. I mean, this could be a whole other segment. Um, but uh, but the biggest takeaway is that I think the tone of the movie, while really interesting um, and ambitious, ran counter to the DNA of the source material. Right. I think the source material of Fantastic Four is bright, optimistic, poppy um, in tone. Um, there's a sort of you know, sort of plucky spirit to those characters. Right. And and we made a darker sort of, you know, um, body horror kind of version of Fantastic right. Four, which again, even as I say it now, sounds really interesting and cerebrally um, ambitious, but isn't necessarily Fantastic Four. Right. Um, so I would, it's a lesson that I would learn, not just for fan, for Fantastic Four, but for any movie going forward is to... Being true to the material. Be true to the material. Yeah. yeah. And like, it's like, you know, when they say shave with the grain instead of against the grain, um, you know, write and direct with the grain. Right. Well, um, as you, what you were saying, it's tough enough to do it when all, when all the ships are in line, but don't make it harder on yourself than you have to. Yeah. And way. I think especially the, the truth is the fans of the comics are fans for a reason. And they right. love the fundamental voice 
um, and tone uh, of the source material. And so if you're adapting, you know, the Bible, don't make it funny. <laughs> <laughs> is, is there a much better or different film in that in the raw material than we saw that you would ever want to reconstitute? I, there's a, I, I, I mean, not in my estimation. Okay. I mean, I feel like, you know, the truth is on any movie, any early cut of a film, middle cut of a film, late cut of a film, even in Deadpool, we had lots of different cuts of that movie. Yeah. Um, it changes and, and it evolves as it goes. Um, I'm too close and too inside the process of making that movie to really have perspective on it, to be honest. All I really think about is the final product, um, how we got there, uh, and, and how it was received in the world and the lessons learned from both. Is there any active discussion in terms of what to do with yeah. that group? Yeah, absolutely, all the time. I mean, it's a big part of... Um, the plan going forward. Uh, yeah. And I think, like I say, the, the biggest lesson learned was um, that Fantastic Four is a great comic book that has its own tone and voice. Yeah. And we need to honor that. Um, and, and I know let you, that lead us. And I know you've talked about it, and I think virtually everyone would agree. The problem, if there was one, wasn't with the cast. You guys assembled an amazing uh, group of guys. So yeah, the intention I, would be to hopefully continue. And I would love to keep making movies with that cast. Yeah. I think they're an amazing cast. If I were to tell you that I got Miles Teller and Michael B. Jordan and, and Kate and Jamie for a movie, that yeah. you'd be like excited about that cast. And I think they can play those parts um, brilliantly. Uh, I just think that you know. And it was everybody. It was it. It wasn't just Josh. And I know Josh gets a lot of the blame for the movie. Um, and it it was everybody. It was the writing, which was me. It was the yeah. and other writers. It was the producing, which was a bunch of us. It was we just like I say on the good movies and the bad movies. You put the same kind of effort yeah. in, and they don't always work out. And on that one, um, it didn't work out. But the hope would be we get another shot, and it would. Uh, to, I mean, to many, um, you you know, your resume like is like the the fanboy, the geek's dream come true, right? And it's we have my dream come true, to be honest. Well, and I want to talk a little bit about sort of like what your uh, where your head was at as a as a kid and what kind of films you were into. You alluded to that a little bit, but but first, I do want to ask about uh, again, and I know you can't really say much about it because it's like the most taboo subject on the planet. But Star Wars, absolutely nothing. I can say absolutely nothing. I literally would get a dart in the well, back of my neck. But you can ask me the question. Well, I'll ask the question. Can you say like how you got involved? Even yeah, in I can say that. Um, uh, Kathy, <laughs> Found the one way in. Yes, Kathy Kennedy um, uh, was hired by George to come in and run Lucasfilm. Is actually before they sold to Disney. Um, and Kathy, I'd, somebody I wanted to work with forever because she's obviously a hero of mine and has, has produced many of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah. And she and I had over the years, she'd sent me things to write and consider, and and we never had a chance to work together. But um, I heard through a mutual friend that she had gotten this job. It was very hush hush, and and my friend told her that I was a huge Star Wars fan, which, you know, I'm not unique in being. <laughs> um, but she and I had a meeting, uh, just a general meeting to talk generally, but also within that specifically about Star Wars. And it was just one of those meetings where you're like, oh my God, I have to work with this. For me, I, I have to work with this person yeah. and, and P.S. Star Wars. Um, <laughs> and she felt, you know, similarly enough um, to say, you know, let's engage, let's keep talking. Mm -hmm. And then... Um, I went up with Kathy to meet um, George uh, at, at, at Skywalker and Marin. Um, and again, I think this, I think I have to go back and look at a calendar, but I think it's before they sold to Disney. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, um, and he said, cool. Well, got a lot of ideas and love for you to be a part of it. And that's Crazy. how I got it. 
hired initially. Here's what I, I wonder will ever come to light, and you're probably one of the very few that know this, judging from when you came into the discussion, mm-hmm. is as much as I, I love Force Awakens, and I think what JJ and you, everybody involved did was is astounding, mm-hmm. uh, given the, again, degree of difficulty and expectation. Mm-hmm. But... Um, but George had had a different idea for a next trilogy. It sounds like a pretty, sound maybe drastically different kind of storyline. Were you privy to that? Do you know what George's take was? Um, I don't know how to answer that one. <laughs> yes, I mean yes is the short answer. And and there's a lot of things in George's um, uh, uh, ideas uh, that that JJ honored. Okay. And day to day or month to month, like what is your like? Do you have an official capacity? Or? I don't know what my official capacity is. Day to day, it can change. I mean, the, 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 officially, I'm writing and producing one of the movies right. that I can't talk about, and um, <laughs> and I'm a consultant, I guess. Um, on on, I was on um, episode seven, and and I am on Rogue One. And so um, I'm just sort of part of the family and part of, and you know, and I created and exec produced uh, this animated show Rebels, which is the, right. the first thing I think that Lucasfilm did is the new entity of Lucasfilm for Disney, um, which is great fun. Um, and it's one of the things that's really extraordinary about Lucasfilm is it is this family environment. Yeah. It's, a, it's a sandbox they create for the artists that make their, their TV shows and films. And we all interact with each other. So it's like I'm talking to Gareth and Ryan and Michael Arndt's involved and JJ. And we all sort of are playing together. Well, it sounds like, I mean, you mentioned Arndt, Arndt and I think of like Pixar. It sounds like they were kind of modeling it in a very smart way out of what they've done in their model. Yeah, I think that's true. And and, and they have a, an amazing core group they call the story group, which are the, the, the sort of creative de- development executives that yeah. you, you would call them at a studio. Um, led by Kiri Hart, uh, who's a former writer and understands writing and has an immense amount of empathy for writers, and 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 herself is a great writer actually. So it, it's just a it's a very story first, writer driven um, community. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the, the the filmmakers they've chosen are writer directors. Like right. Jay is a writer director essentially, even though Larry co-wrote the movie with him and Michael was the first writer. Ryan is a writer director. Um, Collins a, a writer director. Um, so. It is, um, it's just a group of people that love Star Wars. And, and one of the first things that we did when we all got together, and I, I won't tell you in what configuration who the people were, but when, when, when a bunch of us got together um, and we just started embarking on what are these movies going to be, we just had a whiteboard um, and, and said, what do you want to see in a Star Wars movie? And then there was another whiteboard and it just said, um, how do you define Star Wars? And uh, and the tenets from that, um, I think, have remained pretty solid throughout. And, and and not coincidentally, I mean, because she's such a brilliant producer, such yeah. a brilliant gatherer of artists um, and supporter of artists, Kathy, um, the tenets and the things that people we all wanted to see in Star Wars movies tend to be pretty consistent. Yeah. So even though we're very different people, all of the different uh, men and women involved, um, with different perspectives, there's a sort of group love right. for the object of Star Wars. Well, th- does it reveal too much to say like what your personal tenets are, like the one kind of the things you put up on that whiteboard, or the ones that you feel are important to a Star Wars? Well, film I, special. I, yeah, I mean, th- it's a lot, uh, and I think that's part of the the, the value of Star Wars is yeah. like I think it's there's a this is super pretentious, but there's an article by um, or an essay by Umberto, Umberto Eco mm-hmm. called "Travels in Hyperreality," and it's about. I'm going to misquote it, but it's something like one cliche. Um, oh gosh, 
makes us laugh, but a hundred cliches make us cry. Mm-hmm. And that, that one of the things that's so amazing about Star Wars is it combines so many elements from so many of our favorite source texts, not just movies, but right. art and, and, and literature and philosophy and religion. So, I mean, you know, when I define Star Wars, it's a very long list of things that don't feel like they belong together. It's humor, it's religiosity, it's, you know, um, family. It's things that feel like they should be discordant. Yeah. And yet within Star Wars, somehow George found a way to create a tone that could um, encompass all of it. And, and last thing for you on this front, which is, I know, it's a difficult subject to talk about without revealing anything. But I'm like, pretty good at talking around you it. You are so, actually yeah. quite excellent. I feel like <laughs> we're actually getting somewhere, even in, if we're not getting any specifics. Um, but in, in tackling like these kind of, if you want to call them spinoff stories or mm-hmm. whatever, the, the anthology stories, um, it's fascinating. I think, I think what Rogue One, even in the early footage, um, I think it got people just very hardened and excited about that you could see something in the same universe that does have a little bit of a different angle on it, a different Mm -hmm. feel to it. Um, Is the task that much different? Has it been for you in trying to tackle one of these and writing and producing one of these versus doing one of the quote-unquote Skywalker stories? Does it feel like apples and oranges? I don't think it's apples and oranges, um, but I do think that each of the different standalone movies, anthology movies, Star Wars story movies, whatever you want to call them, going forward will have their own requirements that are different than the mainline, you know, episodes. Um, And the mainline episodes will also vary. I mean, with the filmmakers, Ryan's a very different filmmaker from Jay and, and... and um, Colin is from Ryan, and they're all doing very different things. But it is ultimately the Skywalker saga. Right. Um, what we can do in, like, what, you know, um, the guys are doing on uh, the Han Solo, Solo movie yep. um, and what Gareth is doing with Rogue One is y- there is a little bit more play or wiggle room um, to try some different tonalities and right. certainly, obviously, focus on... Um, different characters. So yours is an erotic thriller, is what you're saying. <laughs> the you first, said that. The first Star Wars. You said that. I will see it as a headline somewhere no. that came out of your mouth. No. We are two Jews. We have similarly nasally voices, but that came out of your Josh's voice. Okay, fair yeah, enough. Was not mouth, not mine. <laughs> so what it, what is on your to do list right now? What's what are you working on as, uh, um, as we put to bed X Men Apocalypse? Uh, a little bit of rest um, and figuring out what the next of the X Men movies is going to be right. um, to write. And um, working on uh, the Star Wars movie is um, in terms of New Mutants versus the next X Men movie mm-hmm. in this in this you know continuing saga. Um, like continuity wise, can you tell me like are they in the same? I mean, they're the same universe because there are going to be some overlapping characters. For sure. But timeline, like when when does New Mutants take place versus? I will take a pass on that okay. one. Okay. But they do exist within the same continuity, and it's um, something Josh Boone is very aware of sort of plans for future X-Men movies and where New Mutants would fit into that. Got um, it. And, uh, and you're right, they do have overlapping characters with, yeah. I guess, what I would call our version of the episodes, the sort of mainline X-Men movies. Right, so the Xavier we would see there is going to be McAvoy, presumably. Uh, That's Josh talking, not Simon. But potentially. Okay. Okay. potentially. Okay. My money's on that. Um, I said to McAvoy last night, he was like, he asked me about New Mutants, and he was like, what is New Mutants? And I told him a little bit about it, and he's like, am I going to be in it? And I was like, I can't tell you. <laughs> okay, I'm glad that yeah. I'm in the same camp as yeah. McAvoy then, there at least. <laughs> um, well, again, and just backtracking as we kind of like tie uh, up everything, um, you know, when you when you were growing up, like what were what was your bag? Like what were you obsessed with? Man, honestly, the stuff I do now. Yeah. I mean, I, no joke. I, I grew up on the Star Wars movies. Empire Strikes Back was the reason I wanted to work in movies. Um, and I read comic books. So, you know, I grew up in the golden age of 
action genre movies. I grew up in the 80s, so I grew up on the Lethal Weapon movies and the Terminator movies and Star Wars and so many great films and, and you know, action comedies like Beverly Hills Cop and 48 Hours. Yeah. And so I, I those, to me, were great films growing up. I didn't differentiate between those and whatever movies were nominated for Best Picture. Right. Um, those were great films. Um, and that's just that was sort of my vocabulary. That's the way I learned to speak as an artist and as a human being. Those were my reference points in life. Um, you know, like I had a top gun. This is what I had in my room growing up. I had a huge Swatch watch on the wall. Um, I had a Top Gun poster, I had an Empire Strikes Back poster, and a Flashdance poster. And that was that pretty much defined my childhood, and it pretty much defines me at 42 years old. Well, I was going to say, it's, it's actually not that much different than the office that you're sitting in right now. No, like, it's not. Like, it's a Back to the Future and, and Color of Money. Yeah, and exactly. <laughs> oh, Color of Money, I didn't notice. That's interesting. I mean, I feel, I feel Cruise, it's an underrated one. You know, the only time I've ever been nervous around an actor, and I get nervous around other kinds of people, but the only time I've ever been nervous around an actor was Tom Cruise. And I continue to be nervous around him, even though I've worked with him on a bunch of movies. Um, because he, to me, is, I learned how to be a man, an American. Um, <laughs> He's the personification he of movie star, America, running fast, yes. uh, away from something. <laughs> 100%. So when I'm with him, I'm like, you just did a Tom Cruise. No, you are Tom Cruise. <laughs> so yeah, no, that was that was me growing up. Uh, not to be greedy, but like you've done so many different franchise kind of things and genre things. Is there another franchise that, even just as a fan, like, mm -hmm. you don't need to like, like, you know, list out your resume right now, but what would you want to in, in your mind's eye? I'll tell you, is, I mean, honestly, and, and, and I'm not campaigning for it. I got plenty of work and, yeah. and I, I'm going to keep myself busy for the next <laughs> few years. But the one that I, the other franchise that I love and I grew up on and, um, and, uh, and, and continue to love, and I love the way that they're evolving it, um, is the, is the Bond franchise. James Bond was a, was a, um, a favorite of mine as much as yeah. uh, comic book characters were. And so, and I loved the Sean Connery bond and I actually really love the Pierce Brosnan bond. Mm -hmm. um, and I really, really love what they've done with Daniel Craig. So I'm always interested in what, what, what they're doing. I'm curious just as like, okay, two like, again, film nerds talking about James mm -hmm. Bond, like what do you think they should do in this next, when, whether it's right now, if Daniel's stepping away, which may be depending on if you believe London tabloids or not, mm -hmm. um, or in a movie or two, I mean, cause I've debated this, like what kind of, what kind of bond did they get next and where mm -hmm. do they go next? Because if you look at history, I feel like they've done a good job of kind of mixing it up. Like, I don't think you necessarily personally, I know like for instance, Tom Hardy's been mentioned and yeah. I love Tom Hardy, yeah, obviously. Great actor. But I feel like if you get Tom Hardy, you're getting another a young kind of, Daniel Craig. It's kind of Daniel Craig. He's yeah. another kind of brute force, right? Mm -hmm. And I feel like you you should maybe go a different way. Do you have yeah. a vote on? I don't know. I haven't thought those? about it, but I think you're right, which is that you don't want to repeat. You don't want to just basically recast Daniel Craig um, as right. a younger version of Daniel Craig. I, I think what might be interesting and what what I loved about Sean Connery and, and about Pierce Brosnan, I feel like he gets short shrift. Yeah. I, mean, I like Roger Moore, too, but I think there's a couple of Pierce Brosnans that are really good. Um, though I will say Casino Royale is, is my favorite modern Bond film. Um, I absolutely adore that yeah. film. I go back to watch that movie quite a bit, actually. There's a few scenes I just love. Um, I think maybe if you added a little more um, of the sort of uh, highbrow elegance to him, and I don't know how you do that in casting, yeah. um, or that's in the writing or the directing or whatever, um, that might freshen it up a little bit and make yeah. it feel throwback in a way. 
um, that could be kind of cool. Exactly. Um, well, we'll be discussing Bond for decades to come because yeah. it's one of those things that can never die, nor can X-Men. It's going strong. Um, congratulations on the new one and uh, always good to see you, Simon. Yeah, you too, man. Thanks for coming by. Thank you. Thanks, man. Hey, quick, don't turn the podcast off. I know you probably left it on by accident, but I'm Arnie Niekamp from Hello from the Magic Tavern. This is what's going on. About a year ago, I fell through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King into the fantastical land of Foon. I'm joined by my co-host, a talking badger. Mmm, chunt, please. And a magical wizard. I am Usador, blue wizard of the 12th realm of Ephesius. His name goes on a lot longer than that, but oh, we don't have so time for names. it. We interview adventurers, magical creatures, talking animals, and we talk about buttholes a lot. I apologize <laughs> for that. If that sounds interesting, download Hello from the Magic Tavern. Aye, uh, and then you can join me in my quest to defeat the Dark Lord. Correct, Arnold? Correct. Download it on Earwolf, and the entire back catalog is also on the Howl app. This has been an Earwolf production. Executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Adam Sachs, and Chris Bannon. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.com